0: Okay, so I don't know how long this episode is going to last. It might be longer than usual. The nice thing about podcasts, of course, is that you could stop and hopefully your app will save the place, so be sure to listen to the whole thing, even if it's in a few chunks. If there's anything in the podcast that that stands out to you, especially a reference or a Bible verse, the entire transcript for every episode is available on the website gospeltalker.substack.com. If you click through to a podcast episode, there'll be the entire transcripts, including Bible references, and perhaps any other references that I might make. So be sure to check that out if you're interested. In my last episode, I mentioned, uh, I said something that might have surprised you. Uh, I made the claim that everyone, Christian or otherwise, knows right from wrong. Now, if you're a Christian and you're used to hearing what the average pastor says, it might surprise you because you think, well, the world is full of evil people doing evil things. And on top of that, the Bible says all have sinned and our hearts are desperately wicked. So how can I say that I think people know right from wrong? The Bible tells us that because we all descended from Adam, we inherited this thing called sin. We sin because we are sinners. But that doesn't mean people don't have a general understanding of what is good and what is evil. In fact, no matter how depraved a person gets, no matter how awful the things they do become, they know there's such a thing as right and wrong. Now, I'm not saying every person has a perfect understanding of right and wrong. Whatever idea they have of this... Uh, it's most likely been warped to a great extent. Our sinful culture works very hard trying to redefine right and wrong, especially in the area of sexuality. On top of that, because we are born sinners, our personal acceptance of what is right and wrong has been tainted. Most people neglect, ignore, or outright reject their sense of morality in the first place. But where did this understanding come from? How is it that people have an idea of right and wrong, and then they end up doing wrong anyway? Let's see what the Bible has to say. I'm Adam Castellino, and this is the Gospel Talker Podcast. So this understanding of right and wrong we often call the conscience. In the old, old Disney film Pinocchio, the puppet who wants to become a real boy was visited by this annoying little cricket. Jiminy Cricket served as Pinocchio's conscience. I guess being a wooden doll coming to life, he didn't have his own conscience, so he needed this little bug to tell him what to do. Uh, but of course, Pinocchio rarely listened to Jiminy. If you actually read the original story from Italy, it's much, much worse. Uh, Pinocchio actually kills the cricket, who doesn't have a name, but he later comes back as some kind of ghost to warn him. It's very strange. But for actual human beings, real boys and girls, we don't have a little cricket on our shoulder. Instead, we have an innate understanding of what is good and evil because of our God who created us. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, of course, if you read the Bible, you've read this before. People, human beings, both men and women, are made in God's image. And we often try to draw conclusions from that. We try to explore what that means. But the significance of it is usually greater than what we might understand. The word image in Hebrew implies a replica or a copy. The word likeness communicates much the same idea. So no matter how you slice it, we are made in the image of God. That's a good thing. But why did the Bible take the time to say this? Why does God want us to know we are made in his image? So as a side point, it's important to know the context. Moses wrote the book of Genesis when he was in the wilderness with Israel. And it was the first book of the five books, first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. And it's establishing truth for this nation who's about to enter their promised land. And they need to know the truth about their God. Because the rest of the world, especially Egypt, which they just came from, and then the land they're about to enter, the people there, they worshipped all kinds of fake gods. And most false gods at the time were these bizarre uh, amalgamations of men and animals. There was a god the Philistines worshipped named Dagon, who was part man, part fish, looked almost like a mermaid. And there were other gods that were, you know, very horrific in their appearance, a little more than monsters by our standards. Some cultures later on, like the ancient Greeks, worshipped gods that resembled men and women, not the other way around. So it was important for God to teach Israel that the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, their God, was not one of these bizarre creatures that the rest of the world worshipped. God is nothing like these false gods who were cruel, uncaring, unpredictable. He was their father. We were made in his image. That tells us a little bit about God, but it tells us more about who we are. The term often used by Christians in theological settings is imago Dei, which means image of God. We are made in his image. But this goes beyond the fact that we have arms and legs and fingers and toes. This truth teaches us that we are an imprinting of who God is. We are not little gods, as you know, a New Age cult might say. Instead, our nature is based on God's. It's derived from Him. That's not the case with animals. Cats and dogs are not made in God's image. Neither are whales, spiders, or kangaroos. This is more than just our physical appearance. This speaks of different aspects of who we are as human beings. We are made in God's image, so parts of who He is can be seen to a certain extent in our nature. And that also includes the fact that we are flesh and spirit. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says this, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So this simple verse tells us a lot about human beings. We're not merely flesh and blood. We're not just physical creatures. When God made us in his image, He gave us a spirit. What do you think this breath of life is? Okay, it's the breath that came from God. It was his spirit, because God doesn't need to be there, right? God's spirit entered uh, Adam and gave him his own spirit. So we see man is both flesh and spirit. And we'll get into that in a little bit. You know, the animals weren't made that way. In Genesis 1, God spoke and the animals just kind of sprung up In Genesis 2, he created more animals in the Garden of Eden, and they literally just sprung up from the the dust. He didn't breathe into them and give them a spirit like his. Mankind is different than the animals. We are made in God's image. Part of that means we have a spirit modeled after his own. So the significance of this truth has many wide-reaching consequences, but it includes the fact we know right from wrong. God is our creative father. We resemble him the way a baby resembles his parents. And that includes our intellect, our creativity, our willpower, and many other attributes. And that also includes our conscience. Because we are made in the image of God, Dei, he has given us an understanding of right and wrong. Now, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know they ate from this specific tree, And you might think when they ate from that tree, that's when they gained the knowledge of wrong. Because it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So that must have been when they they first learned about this idea. Well, not exactly. First off, we need to remember this wasn't the tree of knowledge. It wasn't the means by which God intended to give humanity knowledge in the first place. When God created man and woman, he already imparted knowledge to them. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. Both of them could talk, learn, and interact with the created world. Adam was so intelligent, God brought to him all the animals and let him name them. That would have required Adam to interact with those animals, learn their nature, and give them names suitable for them. Eve was also intelligent. We see from scripture she could speak and reason with the serpent. Her shortcoming, of course, was that she believed what Satan said. But that actually tells us that she was able to listen, understand complex ideas, and make decisions. Now, the decision she made was wrong, of course, but not due to a lack of intelligence. Adam and Eve were smart before the fall, they had ample knowledge. So, what did this tree that they were told not to eat from actually provide? Okay, the Bible says it was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. But what does that really mean? Does it mean when they ate the fruit, they suddenly were downloaded this list of all bad things and all good things? Well, no. Adam and Eve already had a knowledge of good. Goodness isn't a list of good things that you know. Goodness is an attitude towards life. Paul writes in Titus chapter 1 verse 15 that to the pure, all things are pure. A truly good person only wants to use the things God gives them for good. It's an attitude of your heart. It's an inclination. It's a perspective. It's less about knowing what's good and more knowing good. Just like you could know about someone but not know them personally. Knowledge in this sense is how you relate to things, how you interact with them, not just having some information in your head about it. Good means you have a God-focused attitude towards the world. But what about evil? What does it mean to have a knowledge of evil in the context of Adam and Eve sinning and eating this fruit? Well, evil isn't merely a list of bad things. It is also an attitude, an inclination, a perspective from your heart towards life. Evil is an attitude that the good things from God can be twisted, misused, perverted, destroyed, exploited, and so on. That's why the moment Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they felt ashamed because they were naked. Why would they feel that way? Because now they know a good thing from God, their bodies can be used in a sinful way. I once saw a video clip of an interview with a well-known TV actor. And like most folks in Hollywood, he was ranting on and on about environmentalism. And he claimed humans... Inclination to so-called destroy the earth was originated from the book of Genesis. And he actually quotes Genesis 1.28, which says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But when he quoted it, he had this attitude where he was like, God said, Dominion the earth, subdue it, defeat it. Had nothing to do with factually and accurately looking at this passage of scripture and relating it honestly. He took this truth from the Bible, and he twisted it to make it seem like humans are using this passage to justify uh, cruelly abusing the earth and exploiting its resources, and on and on. But does Genesis one twenty-eight give humans license to hurt the planet? No. Does it tell us we have a responsibility towards the earth? Yes. But this actor twisted what the scriptures said, looking at it with this evil perspective, because he had an evil attitude towards the good things of God. This is what we call evil. It's not simply a list of bad things, but it's an attitude, a perspective, that is ultimately hostile to God and his word. Just getting back to what Adam and Eve experienced. As I said, they felt ashamed because they saw their bodies, and they were you know, naked well, why was that a problem? Well, because before that, they had no concept that these bodies can be used for evil. But let's think about it a little more. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 is when God first brings the woman to Adam. Okay, and that text strongly implies that Adam and Eve were intimate on that day okay, that's when Moses writes, and the two shall become one flesh, all right, it's very unlikely that Adam and Eve would saw each other in the splendor and beauty of God's creation, and not rightfully in a pure way as husband and wife be intimate, and so from that day, from that moment they met and were in union, they had a good understanding of sex, but when they disobeyed God and ate from this fruit, They suddenly saw their bodies, which we had one just a second before were good and pure and wonderful. Now they had this attitude, oh, these bodies can be used for evil. Now they had ugly and sinful thoughts about sex. And as a result of that, they were ashamed. So we could talk all day long about these passages in Genesis. It's a reason why these are fundamental truths from the Bible. But let's focus on one important point. After Adam and Eve sinned, as I said, they felt shame. Okay, this tells us that they already understood right from wrong and because they just did wrong they felt bad about it. This is what a conscience is meant to do. Conscience isn't just knowing what's good and what's bad. It's making a distinction between those two things so that when you do something bad, you know it and you feel some kind of remorse about it. And that requires Adam and Eve to have a conscience before they ever sinned. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given them a command not to eat. If they didn't know right from wrong, they would not have been able to know that it was wrong to eat from this tree. God's command was this, it is good to eat from all the other trees, but it is wrong to eat from this one tree. So for Adam and Eve to understand this, because they are bearers of God's image, they had consciences, and the remorse they felt after sinning further illustrates that point. So to summarize all this, humans, all humans, have a conscience and understanding of right and wrong because we are made in God's image. It's a part of our nature that is given to us by God. But if you have a hard time accepting this because you see so much sin and evil in the world, here's some more scripture to back up this reality. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 say this, All right, so Paul's saying in, a, in a very illustrious and detailed words that all human beings know who God is because of the created universe. Notice he says, what may be known about God has been shown to us. Well, what, what are we talking about? What about God? That there is a God, that he created us, that he created this world, and that he has something to say about how we live our lives. Why else do you think fallen, sinful people fight so hard to promote ideas like evolution? Evolution can't be proven scientifically no matter what you were told in high school. People harp on ideologies like that because they need a reason to dismiss the obvious, that this amazing universe was created by God. And since God is real and he's alive, we have to actually find out who he is and what he has to say about our lives. Which brings us back to, maybe we're doing something that God doesn't approve of. The fact that even unbelievers have a sense of justice, have a sense of, you know, this is right, this is wrong, and they get upset when bad things happen, proves that there is a universal right and wrong, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe about God. And if there is a universal right and wrong, that transcends culture and and time and, and location then it has to come from someone who transcends culture and time and location, which again brings us back to the truth that God is real. So, of course, there's more to this whole thing than just that. And you might be thinking, Okay, Adam, I can see from the Bible that humans have a conscience. But come on, most people don't give one rip about it. Well, some people claim that humans are inherently good But the factors of this world corrupt us and we end up doing bad things. But that's not entirely true. I'll agree that there is good in each person because, again, we were made in God's image. God doesn't make junk. And even as fallen, weak sinners, we still have good qualities thanks to God. The Bible clearly states that because Adam sinned, all of humanity, who were still in his loins, so to speak, sinned with him. Paul says this in Romans 5, verse 12. He writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. See that? Because all sinned. When Adam sinned, everyone born from him was a sinner. This means we are born hostile to God. Peter says we were like sheep going astray. Paul explains in Romans 1, 21 and 22, that humanity, because of our sin, ended up becoming foolish. We pursued false gods and then became our minds became darkened. So while we have a knowledge of right and wrong, we are by default in darkness. So even if we still have some good in us because of sin, we're corrupted. And our understanding of right and wrong has been corrupted as well. But the problem becomes even more complex given the reality of our sinful state. Even when most people try to do the right thing, they end up not doing it. Paul explains this in great detail in Romans 7, verses 18 and 19. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, I want to do the right thing, but I can't do it. This is an important fact, so listen closely. Paul is talking as a Jew who not only has a conscience, like we all do, but a a detailed set of instructions from God called the law of Moses. So it wasn't like him just trying to rely on his limited conscience to understand right and wrong. He had the scriptures telling him without any shadow of a doubt, this is right and this is wrong. But even under those circumstances, he failed to do the right thing again and again. Notice he says the will to do it is there. He wants to do it. He has this kind of intention of doing the right thing. But the ability to do the right thing is not there. Even when people try to do the right thing, they often fail. Do you know that willpower is a limited resource? Years ago, I read an article about how doctors are discovering that your willpower, your will to do something, has limits, just like your physical stamina. And I actually found the article. It's available on the show notes. You know, you could only go up and down a flight of steps so many times before you're exhausted. And at the end of the day, everyone needs to go to bed to recharge their body. And that is true of your willpower. You could decide that you'll quit smoking. For example, and you might be successful for a day, maybe two days, maybe a week. But if you're relying on your own willpower to do it, you will eventually run out of that willpower. And the temptation to smoke will just overcome you eventually. And that's why so many people renege on their diets. That's why they stop going to the gym after New Year's or even end relationships. And it's why nobody can keep doing good all the time. So, why is our willpower so weak? Because the flesh is weak. Willpower comes from your own natural strength. And because you're a fallen creature, cut off from God, you are lacking the actual power you need to do good, to overcome sinful temptation, to resist temptation, and instead do good things based on what God calls good. So, to sum up, the Bible tells us that everyone knows right from wrong. But this understanding has been darkened because we're disobedient to God. So not everyone has a clear idea of what is actually right and wrong. And on top of that, when we try to do good, we often fail because we don't have the power to keep doing good all the time. So I didn't bring up this issue just to talk about the conscience of the average person. There's a lot more that we need to get into. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there are some important biblical truths you need to know about yourself. You see, when someone turns to the Lord in faith, repents of their sins, and receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their God, they are fundamentally changed. Christianity is not merely a religion where we try to follow all the rules to earn favor from Jesus. The gospel is the good news that, even though you are dead in your sins, Jesus Christ took the punishment you deserved. So you can be totally forgiven of your sin and given eternal life from God. This is part of what we call grace. God's unmerited favor bestowed on us unworthy sinners. All because of his great love for us. But what happens when someone is, as we call, saved? What actually changes Well, for that, we need to take a look once again at this verse from Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7. Remember, it says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this verse briefly describes the creation of the first human being, although it's short, it tells us a lot. First off, we learn that our bodies are made from the dust of the ground. Why is that important? Well, tells us that our bodies are made from the stuff of this earth, the elements, so to speak. Why did God do this? Well, because God gave us a physical body made from the physical world so we can interact on the world. But there's even more significance to it than that. Your body is made of this earth. Therefore, it is tied or linked to this world. For good or for ill, your physical nature is a part of this world. And this physical nature is what the New Testament often refers to as the flesh. Now, depending on what teachings you've read or what you've learned from your church, you might have a a very different understanding of what the word flesh means. Some people say the flesh is a figurative term meaning the sin nature. And some Bible translations even translate the word flesh as sin nature in certain parts of the Bible. But that's not accurate. Your flesh isn't a sin nature, okay? It's just your body. It's just your earthly part of who you are. God made your flesh so it is inherently good. God doesn't make evil things. But, and this is an important point, we don't live by the flesh. Meaning we don't let our earthly nature dictate what we believe or dictate the decisions we make. Why? Because we have another part of our nature that came from God's very spirit. Remember, God made our bodies out of the stuff of the earth, right? Dust, dirt. But what happened next? God breathed into Adam's nostrils, and then he came to life. Genesis 7 says Adam became a living being. Some Bibles translate that as living soul, because that word for being Uh, In Hebrew, it can often mean soul, but it's a very broad term that is generally used to refer to you as a living being, a person, and that includes all aspects of your life, both earthly and spiritual. Human beings have a physical or earthly nature and a spiritual nature or a spirit. Where did that spirit come from? God made it from the breath of from his spirit. So it's not air, of course. It's the Holy Spirit. When mankind was created, God gave him a physical body to interact with the world and a spirit to interact with and commune with God. But remember what God warned Adam and Eve about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He told them, The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But how did Adam and Eve die? In my episode about sacrifices... I explain that God spared Adam and Eve physical death by killing two animals in their place. Those were the animals that provided the coverings for their naked bodies. God was showing them mercy so they would not die in that moment physically. However, they did die in a certain sense. The Bible teaches us that we were all dead in our sins. Sin produces death. First spiritual death, then physical death. When we were born sinners, we were already born spiritually dead. And those who don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ get to look forward to a second death called the lake of fire, where both body and spirit will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity, according to Revelation. So what happened spiritually to Adam and Eve when they sinned? Their physical bodies remained the same, but their spirits died. What does it mean for a spirit to die, though? Honestly, it's a hard concept to wrap our heads around because the words we use are words derived from our natural lives. So if by definition, we can't communicate spiritual truths very accurately. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul explains his predicament that the natural man and the natural mind can't understand spiritual things. And we need God's Spirit to help us communicate spiritual thoughts with spiritual words but we're still left with earthly language to describe these things. So when we say something is spiritually dead or a person is spiritually dead, we don't mean like a dead corpse, right? When we think of something dead, it's like something that's just lying there, boom, dead. We even mean that figuratively when we say things like, oh, my phone is dead. We mean the battery in the phone is out of energy, so the phone doesn't work. It's just limp and lifeless, kind of like a dead body. But when when a body dies physically, it's because the spirit has left it. Without the spirit, the human body is dead. But how can a spirit be dead? Well, again, this term is figuratively applied to something that can't die the same way a body can die. So the best way we can describe it is this. Spiritual death is separation from God. Like I said, your spirit was given to you by God, so you could commune with him. The spirit does, you don't need a spirit to interact with the physical world. Animals don't have a spirit in the sense that we do, but they interact with the natural world just fine. But human beings were created differently. God gave us a body, and he gave us a spirit. And by the spirit, we are to know God. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So you need a spirit to commune with your God. Your body isn't enough to comprehend God. You can't know him physically in that sense. You know people physically, but you can't know God physically in that sense. You need a living spirit that can connect with God, so to speak, to touch God in a sense. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that connection. It was like the Wi-Fi blinked out. Now they were suddenly alienated and alone in the world that they used to have God with them. And we know this is true because when God appeared, they fled from him. They tried to hide themselves. You see, God didn't do that. Adam and Eve automatically ran away when God appeared. Because that is what sin does. It drives us away from God. And that driving away from God is what we call spiritual death. And there's no way to fix it on your own. So in a word, our spirits are dead because they lack that connection with God. Because our spirits are dead, our entire being is lacking the light, truth, love, grace, and hope that can only come from God. As I said, everyone is born a sinner and they are born without this connection with God. And some call it a God-shaped hole that we all have. Our spirits were made so that we can touch God, and so God can touch us, in a sense, to know Him, to love Him, to interact with Him. But without God, without a relationship with Him, every person has a deep cavernous emptiness inside of them. That cavern is the result of being a sinner. But instead of turning to God, people will try to fill that emptiness with other things usually more sin, sex, drugs, materialism, experiences, money, you name it. People keep trying to fill that void with sin, but they end up emptier than they were when they started, because that void in us can only be filled by knowing God. So let's recap for a minute real quickly. God made us human beings with a body and a spirit, and both were alive until sin. Adam and Eve died spiritually when they sinned. And spiritual death is not like physical death. Spiritual death is separation, alienation from God. Sin does this. As the Bible says, sin gives birth to death in all its forms. And because we're born spiritually dead, we're lacking the one thing that will make us whole, a relationship with our Creator. And because Uh, We don't have him. We try to fill that need with other things. So we see sin drives us away from God. Because we don't have God, we try to satisfy us with more sin. It's like this endless spiral of death. Now, I know you may not like it, but because our forefather was Adam, and because he sinned, we all inherited this sinful condition. Just like you inherited your blue or brown eyes from your parents, you inherited sin from your great, 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 great Grandparent Adam. So, where does that leave us? Our spirits were dead, disconnected from the life they need that can only come from God. And so, our bodies were now the thing that was in the driver's seat, so to speak, of our life. Our spirits lacked the divine power to lead us in righteousness, which means to resist sin and do good. And because our spirits didn't have the very thing that they needed, our bodies, our human nature, Was in charge. But your earthly power, intellect, skills, etc., are not enough to resist sin and do good. Like we said, willpower runs out. And on top of that, you were cursed. I mentioned this in my last episode. Being born a sinner means there is a law or principle at work within you. You know you have to do good, but because you're alienated from God, you cannot. Even if you try, your flesh lacks the power to do right. That's because this principle of sin is at work within you. You're spiritually dead, your flesh is weak and cursed, so you keep on sinning. So simply put, your body is not your sin nature. Sin nature is a term to describe this principle we've been going through discussing. As a fallen sinner, regardless of what you know about right or wrong, you're unable to do right all the time. You're spiritually dead, cut off from God, and you rely on your flesh to live and make it through the day. But your flesh is weak and cursed because it's of the earth, and the earth was cursed because of Adam, and you're unable to resist temptation most of the time. And on top of that, because you weren't born knowing God and you're ignorant of his ways, you had an inclination to do the opposite of what he said. This is what it means to be in spiritual darkness. We're alienated, hostile towards God. Most of the time, you didn't want to do good. And because sin is pleasurable for a short time, your flesh rarely even tried to resist it. So this is a pretty bad state to be in. But that is the lot for every human being born of Adam. And it kind of gives you an understanding of why our world is in such a mess that it's in, right? So the question we have to ask is, who is going to save us from this horrible, just terrible predicament? Enter Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection provided a means of salvation from this whole mess. As I explained in my last episode, Jesus took that curse that we're experiencing onto himself when he suffered on the cross. The Bible says he became sin. He bore our sins in his body. He suffered in our place, and he condemned sin in the flesh. All these terms mean Jesus took the punishment you and I deserved for our sins. And when he rose again on the third day, he showed us that the debt has been paid in full. And because he is alive today, we can be alive too, in every sense of the word. Jesus promised that he came to give life and life more abundantly. That means life in every area of who we are. So when someone believes in Jesus Christ, the Bible says they are born again. So what does that mean? Well, Ezekiel gives us some insight about this coming new birth in a prophecy made many years before Jesus came. A portion of it we're going to read is Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. God promises, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments to do them. So when a person believes in Jesus Christ, something very special happens. Before we get into it, I want to look up another very fascinating moment in the Bible. In John chapter 20, Jesus is resurrected and he appears to the disciples in the upper room. In verse 22, he does this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus do that? What was so significant to that? Well, remember, when God first made human beings, he breathed into them, into Adam, and gave them their spirit. But then when we sinned, our spirits died. And now we're all born spiritually dead. So when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the first people who would be born again, he does the same thing. He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? It's like this book was written by the same person. God breathed onto us when we were first born, first created, and then he breathed on us again to mirror that moment. But not the physical birth, but this new birth where we now receive the Holy Spirit once again as a sign of our forgiveness of sins. And Ezekiel breaks it down into greater detail. He says God will put his spirit into us. That was Jesus doing that in John chapter 20. But a few more things happen. God promises to give us a new heart, a new spirit, and the spirit of the Lord comes and dwells within us. So like I said, let's start with that last part. Jesus breathed unto disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. He writes in him you also trusted, meaning Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, that's us, to the praise of his glory. So according to the promises of the New Testament, God's spirit comes and dwells within us. Okay, it wasn't just for those people in the upper room. Paul says, you also were sealed by the Holy Spirit. And his coming and dwelling within us is a guarantee, a voucher, if you will, of our forgiven state. He's the one that comes and brings the assurance and the confidence that we are forgiven and we are now children of God. It's the Holy Spirit who brings the rest of this transformation in Ezekiel. He takes away our old dead spirit and gives us a brand new spirit. Ezekiel is referring to our dead human spirit that was cut off from God because of our sin. God has taken away our sins through Jesus, and now we can be restored to fellowship with Him. We fellowship with God because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Every Christian receives the Holy Spirit the moment they believe. Now, there's also something called a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus describes in Acts 1. That is something that comes after being born again, but it's something worth another episode. So, the Holy Spirit makes us born again by coming to life inside of us. He gives us a new spirit that is holy and unblemished by sin. But what is he talking about this thing called a new heart? Is that also the spirit? Is that something else? What, What does he mean by that? And how does it relate to everything we've been talking about? All right, now it's time to talk about the human heart. Okay, pretty simple subject, right? Now, depending on what you've read in books and from pastors and teachers, and how you view the Bible, you might have one of many different views on the heart. We know the heart is a figurative term used to describe an important aspect of our nature. The reason why we use the word heart is because the ancient Greeks thought. The literal heart, which they called cardia, where we get the words like cardiology, they thought that was the center of our emotions, our thoughts, our will, etc. And so that is why we use that word to describe this non physical part of ourselves, not the real heart, but something else. But what is it really? And what does it have to do with our discussion? As I've been emphasizing throughout this whole episode, Uh, We know from the Bible human beings are both flesh and spirit. I think we've seen that established quite clearly in what we've read. But some people think we also have this third part of our nature that they refer to as the soul. Some people think that we're multiple fragments of nature, mind, body, spirit, emotions, etc., etc. And some people break it down even further, you know, in different ways. But let's keep it simple. I think the more complicated we make it, the harder it is for us to understand what God is saying. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says humans have two sides of our nature, or two natures made into one, our earthly nature and our spiritual nature. We are flesh and spirit. That is it. What about this word for soul? Doesn't the Bible use this word as well? Well, as I explained earlier, the Hebrew word that is sometimes translated soul into English is a broad term that generally refers to your life, your existence. And so it can be interpreted as you as a person, your personality, just you as a being, not a specific part of you, right? So it's more of a holistic term to refer to you as a living person. In the New Testament, there are two words in the Greek that are often translated, one as spirit, one as soul. But both have very close uh, connection. Spirit is the word pneuma in the Greek, and it comes from a root that means breath or wind, much like the Hebrew word for spirit. The idea of spirit in the Greek refers to the life force that allows us to live. Without a spirit, the body is dead. The word soul is suche, In the Greek, and it can also be translated as life or breath or the breath of life. So you see, the concepts are very similar. Both words, uh, spirit and soul, in the New Testament, can be used interchangeably. Now, I'm not an expert in Hebrew or Greek. I did research, but you could do more research if you like. So you don't have to uh, buy my interpretation if you're skeptical. But from what we see in the scriptures, These words translated soul in both Hebrew and Greek tend to be used the same way. They generally refer to our life or existence as a person. And in some cases, they refer to specific aspects of our existence, perhaps our thoughts or emotions. Spirit, on the other hand, more often than not refers to the literal spirit that exists inside of us. Confused enough? (laughs) Let me try to make it simple. Human beings are made of two parts, body and soul, or flesh and spirit, if you prefer those terms. When the Bible uses terms spirit and soul together, it's not suggesting the soul is a separate part of your nature. You're a body and a soul, that's it. So it's worth asking the question, where do our thoughts and emotions and desires come from? They're not tangible, right? They're not physical. So we sometimes assume that, well, that's a spiritual part of our life. And the Bible does suggest your spirit has its own thoughts and desires in a sense. When you were a sinner cut off from God, the only thing your spirit desired was sin. Paul says in Ephesians that the devil was the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. That doesn't mean every unbeliever is possessed by the devil or demons, but that our spirits were under the influence of Satan's lies. When we received Christ, he removed that dead spirit and gave us a new one. You might describe it as your dead spirit coming back to life. Both concepts are used in the Bible to describe the same thing, the new birth. Paul says our new man, our new spirits, were created in Christ's image, based on Ephesians 4.24. Our spirits are holy, and they no longer desire sin. They are part of our nature that desires to please God. So where do, you know, sinful thoughts and desires and emotions come from? As we saw in Ezekiel, we have a spirit and we have a heart. Our new spirits do not desire sin anymore. But notice what the prophet said about the heart. He said, God doesn't give us a sinless heart, but a heart of flesh. What does that mean? Before we came to Christ, we had hearts of stone. That means we were stubborn and resistant to God. We didn't care what he had to say. We didn't believe in him. But now in Christ, our hearts are tender, receptive to God's word. Our hearts want to listen and heed what God is teaching us from his word by the Holy Spirit. He literally says that the Spirit is writing God's word on our hearts. So where are these hearts located? Well, God tells us. He literally says he removed this heart of stone from our flesh, meaning from our earthly nature. What we call the heart is actually part of our earthly nature, our bodies, our flesh. That's not too crazy to to believe when you think about it. Thoughts and emotions come from our brains. They are fascinating electrochemical reactions that happen faster than the speed of light, as far as we can tell. Now, we often associate our brains or our mind with the clinical, emotionless reasoning of our functioning. But our brains do much more than that. The brain is where memories are stored. The brain processes information. The brain controls our motor functions, our voluntary and involuntary movements, the beating of our heart, our breathing, our digestive system. Everything is managed by the brain. And emotions come from the brain as well. Even though we might describe them as something separate. Sometimes we feel something in the pit of our stomachs, right? Sometimes we feel a sensation that makes our skin tingle, right? Feelings, both emotional and physical, might occur at different places in our bodies, but they all come from our brains. Simply put, what we call the heart is actually a function of our brain. Emotions and our so-called emotionless thoughts, which don't really exist. Even our logical thoughts have a lot of emotion connected to them. They all come from our brains. Now, I'm not saying human life is purely a mind over matter experience. I'm saying we are wrong when we think our brains are purely logical. They are the center of our emotions as well as our thoughts. And our brains are the part of our nature that first processes the gospel when it's preached to us. The Bible uses a variety of terms to describe our thoughts and emotions because the Bible was written by people who lived in different cultures who had different euphemisms to describe what we're talking about. And that's fine, that's very colorful and very uh, helpful for us to understand. Commonly, the terms used uh, refer to our emotions and thoughts as things that we don't see, of course, because they're not a hand or a foot, they're internal. So sometimes the language used in the Bible refers to these parts of us as part of our inner being. And that's why people sometimes confuse the idea of the spirit with our thoughts and emotions. Because we don't see our thoughts and emotions, they're internal, that must mean it's part of our spirit, right? So our spirits can desire sin or be tempted, and or no, it's the soul, and the soul is separate from the spirit and the body, and we have three, but that's not true. Our thoughts, emotions, and desires, for the most part, come from our earthly heart and mind, which are both functions of the brain. What about our thoughts or desires, perhaps, that come from our spirit? Well, because our spirit is in union with the Lord and it's the Holy Spirit, those thoughts are often realized as thoughts coming from the Holy Spirit. And that's often when the Bible talks about the spirit overcoming the flesh. We we think of that as the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit who's at work within our spirits teaching us and working to overcome the flesh. Which is why most of the time our thoughts and desires are coming from our earthly nature rather than the Spirit. So what does this all mean for the Christian? Well, when you received Christ, you received a born-again Spirit. That Spirit is a part of you that communes with God and is in union with the Holy Spirit. Your new spirit, as I said, doesn't desire sin. It's the part of you that has faith, that receives wisdom, insight, knowledge, and so forth. But God also gave you a new heart, one that is tender and receptive to God's word. This heart, collectively, we could call it your brain or your mind or your consciousness, etc. are all different terms that refer to the same part of you. But it also includes, of course, your conscience, That understanding of right and wrong, that's a part of your heart, your mind. Your spirit doesn't want to sin, but your heart, although it's now tender and receptive to God's word, it's still a part of your earthly flesh, and it's not yet perfected. This is where many Christians stumble. They know they are forgiven, born again, brand new creatures in Christ, but they don't understand why they are still tempted to sin, why they still struggle with sin. It's because your body is not yet perfect. Your spirit is, and it's growing and maturing the way a tree matures and grows from a seed. But the Bible says there will come a day when Jesus calls his people home. Okay, all Christians, both dead and currently living, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. On that day, we will receive new bodies. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. These bodies won't be earthly anymore. They will be just like Jesus' resurrected body. Paul says they will be heavenly, meaning they won't be made of the dust of this world, but of the stuff, so to speak, of heaven. So what could that be? They will be physical bodies, yes, meaning that they'll be able to touch and interact with things, but they're going to be supernatural. Paul says they'll be spiritual. One way of looking at this is that these bodies will be made of the word of God, which lasts forever. Now, if that seems like a foreign concept to you, remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 123, you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So our born again spirits that we receive when we believe in Jesus, we're made by the word of God. Literally, the word of God was like a seed that was planted within us that produced this new life. So our new spirits, in a sense, are made of God's word. So our new bodies will be made of God's word, which is why they'll live forever, because the word of God is the only thing that will endure forever. So those new bodies, which we are looking forward to, will not be made of this earth. So they will not contain hearts and minds that can be tempted to sin. We won't be able to suffer pain or sickness. We won't experience things like fear or shame. In a word, we will be totally sinless. So why not now? Why don't we have those bodies the instant we are saved? Well, because God has determined that promise to come at an appointed time, and it hasn't happened yet. In the meantime, we are undergoing a process called sanctification, what we also call maturing in our faith. You see, our hearts are also utilizing faith. The process of growing as a Christian is taking what God puts in our spirits and bringing it outward to our outer lives. There's even a parable where Jesus talks about this, that the kingdom of God is like a merchant who goes into his storehouses and brings out treasures, both old and new. So God is storing within us this treasure of wisdom and truth and grace spiritually. And a part of maturing in Christ is bringing that treasure outward into our outer lives. God changes us from the inside out. Our spirits are growing in knowledge, faith, hope, love, and so on. The result of that is that our outer person Our outer bodies are being changed by that growth. But how does this happen? It happens by our hearts and minds being renewed by God. So here's something interesting. When we're first saved, we don't get a literal new brain. It's not like the Lord performs brain surgery and we have a whole new brain. Instead, God does something that could only be considered a miracle. He transforms the way our brains work. It's really amazing when you think about it. Before we believed in Jesus, we were one kind of person. But afterwards, we are totally different. It's just like Scrooge at the end of the story. We are brand new people. We think differently. We see the world differently. Our actions are different and continue to change. how is this possible? Because God has not only given us new spirits, but he has effected a profound change on our brains— what we call the heart and the mind. So I know this is a lot to process, especially if this is the first time you're hearing these kinds of ideas. So let me try to break it down in a way that kind of demystified. Okay, as the Bible says, you are flesh and you are spirit. The part of you we call the heart and mind is a part of your flesh, your earthly nature. When you are saved, you receive a new spirit and a new heart. Your human heart or mind is changed. You have a new perspective on life. You now know and believe in God. As you grow in your relationship with Christ, your heart continues to change. It is renewed by God's truth each day as you read his word and you fellowship with him. God's spirit continues to pour new life and grace into your spirit, and that grace transforms your outer heart or mind. As your heart grows in grace, you continue to think and live differently. This is a process of spiritual maturation we call sanctification. And the result of that, of course, is that you continue to resist sins, you have greater strength and victory over temptation, and continue to do more good for God, which is what we call the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. I started this podcast talking about how every human being has an understanding of right and wrong. That conscience is a function, you could say, of our hearts and minds. We know right and wrong, intellectually speaking, but when we do wrong, our hearts feel bad. We call that feeling guilty or being ashamed. John in First John calls it our hearts condemning us. Now, when someone turns to Christ, their conscience doesn't just go away, but for the first time ever, our consciences can be at peace because we know the wrongs we have done have been totally forgiven. See, the people of this world work very hard at turning down their consciences, right? Like volume. Why is that? Because they continue to struggle to do good, and they are intent on doing evil. So even when they try to do good, they fail, but most of the time they want to do bad. And their conscience is still there telling them, hey, right from wrong, so they try to just ignore it, dismiss it, redefine it, so they can feel better about themselves. But when we receive Christ's forgiveness, we don't have to ignore our consciences anymore. Because now, for the first time, they're finally clean. You can't do that yourself. No amount of good works can appease your conscience. And no amount of sacrifices in the Old Testament can make their consciences clean, according to Hebrews chapter 9. In fact, the New Testament talks about our conscience very often. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5 that one of the goals of his ministry was to have a good conscience, meaning when we turn to Christ, we no longer feel ashamed or that we're in trouble for the wrongs we've done. God has taken away the guilt and the shame. We have a clean conscience before him. But what happens, though, when we sin after coming to Christ? Do I have time to get into that in this episode? Well, it's a podcast, so I can have as time as I want. But let me see if I could explore this a bit more before we wrap up. Um, and again, you can pick this up later if you want. If you can't listen to this whole thing, uh, just pause it if you like. So be sure to finish this episode if you're curious at all about how consciences work as a Christian. And as I said, all this is going to be in the show notes on the website. So Christians don't lose their conscience when they turn to Christ. In fact, you can say that our consciences are actually functioning properly for the very first time. And with the knowledge that God imparts to us, they are being strengthened and and refined. Thanks to the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, who is teaching us God's Word, we have a much clearer understanding of right and wrong. The Bible's truth is being written on our hearts by His Spirit. So we, of all the people of the world, know best what is good and what is evil. Of course, that means when we do sin, we feel bad about it. That's normal. If we believe what the Bible says about right and wrong, we should feel upset when we break it. When a Christian sins, they should feel a sense of wrong inside themselves. And that might be different for each person. I've heard people say they felt an emptiness or a sense of uncleanness, maybe sorrow or something like that. The point is not the feelings, of course, but acknowledging the fact that you did something wrong and you need to deal with it. It is the Holy Spirit who has given us this sharpened, refined conscience so that when we sin, we can respond biblically. Now, this might put a bee in some of your bonnets, but when people say the Holy Spirit convicted of sin, that's actually not accurate. That's not the job of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Jesus said in John that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but not the believer. See, unbelievers who are ignoring their consciences need the Holy Spirit to kind of slap them into (laughs) common sense and impresses upon them the need of uh, the repentance, of forgiveness. But once you are a believer, the Holy Spirit is in a process of affirming your sonship. He's called the Spirit of Sonship. He cries out, in our spirit, Abba, Father. He's the one that reminds us and firmly roots us in the fact that we have been reconciled to the Father and we're no longer children of wrath. He's renewing our minds by the Word of God. A part of that process is him refining our consciences so they are keenly aware of right and wrong. So it's not the Holy Spirit who is slapping you around as a Christian saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, you you should feel bad about it. Now, he's the one instructing you on what's right and wrong through the teaching of the word, through your Bible study, through the preaching of a pastor. And that when you sin, it's your conscience that kind of alerts you like an alarm clock saying, you've done this and this is wrong. Now that your conscience is kind of flaring up like that, you need to decide what to do. And how you respond is critically important. When we sin, we do not run away from God as Adam and Eve did. Nor should we dismiss the sin or make excuses or try to sweep it under the rug. We are in a covenant of grace, meaning we don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to feel scared. We don't have to feel crushed. Instead, we acknowledge that we did wrong before the Lord and confess that we are forgiven. So what do I mean by that? Well, one of the most important verses about forgiveness is 1 John 1.9. Memorize it if you haven't already. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have this wrong understanding of confession. Uh, We think confession involves simply admitting to God we sinned. Well, that's not the full picture of it. I think we've got that idea of confession thanks to the Catholics who have the confessional where they have to tell a priest all the wrong things they've done. But that's not what the Bible says. Yes, when we repent... We admit to God we did something wrong. But confessing, that word in the Greek is homologio, which means to speak the same thing. What the heck does that mean? It means we speak the same thing God is speaking about our sin. Yes, we admit that what we did was wrong. But because of Jesus, those sins have been forgiven. So, this is important. Eternally speaking, when you first come to Christ, all your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. So, when a Christian sins, they're not suddenly out of the grace of God. It's not like they're just done, they're no longer Christians, because they're totally forgiven forever. You won't go to hell if you believe in Jesus Christ just because you stumbled, because that would mean your sin, whatever it was, is somehow greater than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But what it does mean is that your conscience is now bruised. When you do something wrong and you're aware of it, you should feel upset about it. And you are naturally carrying around a sense of shame because of what you did. That knowledge of evil, as we saw with Adam and Eve, will disrupt your enjoyment of God. It's your heart that is condemning you. And while you're carrying around this sense of wrong, you won't be able to gladly pray worship, study the Bible, and so forth, because of this knowledge that you sinned. See, God isn't holding the sin against you. Jesus took away your sin. But your heart is bothered, and that you need to deal with. Okay, all of this is by God's design. This is you functioning normally, because he does not want us to ignore the sin in our lives. We are called to rule and reign with Christ in his future kingdom. And part of this is our training in righteousness. So we'll be wise and holy citizens of that kingdom. So when we sin, we turn to God, acknowledge the sin, and thank him for his forgiveness. That is when the Holy Spirit steps in and brings this assurance of forgiveness and cleanses us from the shame we're feeling. All right, how do I wrap up an episode like this? Let me try to summarize everything I've gone over. All human beings have a conscience is part of their earthly hearts and minds because we were made in the image of God. But all of us, because we were born sinners, have ignored or dismissed our conscience. People are both flesh and spirit, according to Genesis 2.7. And all of us before Christ were spiritually dead, meaning we were separated from God. Because of this, our fleshly understanding was corrupted. We can't do good, nor do we usually want to do good. But when someone receives Jesus, they receive a new living spirit. We are restored to fellowship with God. And our earthly hearts, which are our minds, our brains, are changed to be receptive to God's truth. This is all part of becoming born again. As Christians, our spirits are alive. And by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, the grace he imparts to our spirits is transferred to our earthly heart which means our hearts are renewed by God's word and our bodies, our lives behave differently. We still have a conscience, but it is restored with the knowledge of God's word. And when a Christian sins, their conscience alerts them. And that is meant to drive them to Christ to reaffirm they are forgiven. Of course, that leaves plenty of other questions. What if you're doing something you don't realize is sin? What happens if you don't turn to Christ when you feel that uh, conscience alerting you? And here's a big one. If we are totally forgiven of our sins because of grace, why should we bother avoiding sin in the first place? If we're forgiven, why can't we just live as we please? That is certainly the sting of the scorpion. And we will look at that, Lord willing, in the next episode. This is the Gospel Talker podcast with your host, Adam Castellino. If you've enjoyed these episodes, please feel free to share this with everyone you know. And you can also rate the show if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. The home of the Gospel Talker is gospeltalker.substack.com. Every episode has show notes and a manuscript that you could read, including all the Bible references mentioned.